Hello everyone. Welcome to my show Career Startup Podcast, a podcast to spotlight Asian leaders and interesting allies that I meet in my life. And this is your host Priyanka Kamla. Today I have with me a very special guest, Sara Chauhan, who's joining us from the United Kingdom. Hi Sara, how are you doing? Good to see you. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure to see you. And um I know it's like late in the night today. So how are you still feeling about being on the show? You know, I feel pretty buzzed actually. I think it was all the coffee I drank before actually coming on. So <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm fine. That's pretty exciting to know Sara and you're somebody that I really admire. So to our listeners, let me tell you who Sara is. She was the first female presenter of Country File, which is the longest running BBC flagship show that focuses on uh, the rural uh, parts of the world. and she's also a former broadcaster who's relaunched her late husband Nigel Wyatt's book it's called 2020 uh sara can you show us the book cover of 2020 as a sneak peek with pleasure so this is the the relaunched version of 2020 by my late husband Nigel Watts and um as you can see it's the cover is uh, of a man with a mask actually it was designed by Arthur Billington who helped me publish this book and um and it's because it's about a global pandemic but the weirdest thing is that the book was written originally uh, and published in 1995 so um yes i'm sure we'll get into the book in a while let me just say i wasn't the first female presenter of countryfile i was the first asian, asian. presenter people just just yes just to kind of make that Exactly. I was just so excited. So she was the first female Asian presenter of the BBC show Country Files. So thank you Sara. Really excited to having you um, on the show and learn a lot of interesting things about you as a person as well as the book 2020 and some interesting facts about your apartment hunting and where you ended up uh, with Royal Highness uh, and the contract that you signed up with her. So a lot of exciting things. Yes. Yeah, that was very interesting actually. I um It was about a year after my husband passed away and uh I was looking for a, an apartment you know a place to live because I had been living with friends before that and um in those days we're talking was 2000 it was the year 2000 I didn't we didn't do a lot of online searching or at least I didn't I used to use the old fashioned newspaper and um I saw a picture of this beautiful little place in the paper and I thought well I really like the look of that you know to rent and so I went I called the agents and um they arranged to meet me and I ended up in this gorgeous courtyard um in in a place called Hampton Court and if any of your viewers have heard of Hampton Court Palace it was just close to to the Hampton Court Palace um anyway and I just fell in love with this place and I said to the agent I would like to take it and he said now are you sure and I said well of course I'm sure why are you asking me and he said because you've got a very unusual landlady and I was like who well, who is she and he said her royal highness queen elizabeth the second very seriously and i was like really how come and what it was was this property was part of um some grace and favor properties which is basically where royal household staff live um but this was the first one that they were letting out commercially and uh, and i got to live there and i still have the contract with a royal seal on it saying you know contract between sahara chahan me and uh, sir michael somebody or other i can't remember his last name uh, on behalf of her royal highness so that was that was quite an interesting story <laughs> you speak about the united kingdom and uh, royalty uh, 
that's something that we have to talk about, right? Whenever you have a guest from that part of the world. So thank you for sharing that interesting tidbit. I'm quite sure you had a lovely experience being in that property owned by the royals. Yeah. So Sarah, you've been the first female Asian presenter at BBC. And I wanted to uh, focus more on your portfolio because you're somebody that I really feel inspired by, uh, you know, as somebody that uh, is a role model for a lot of young women who are trying to make a niche for themselves in the media. So tell us about your childhood and what shaped you into being the person you are today. Yeah. So, um, again, I wasn't the first Asian presenter at the BBC. My goodness, that, that would have been several years before me. But I was, um, you know, one of the, let's say, the early tranche. Um, you know, when I started out in TV, really, there were not many Asian on-screen talent. Um, there was behind the camera, but not in front. And I had to start behind the camera. Um, now, it, it interesting you asked the question because I was reflecting on this earlier. And when I was a little girl, um, I'm very old now, so people may not remember this, but we used to have these reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders that my um, parents had. And uh, I used when they used to have parties, I used to go around as a little girl, I can't have been more than about six or seven, with a little microphone into pretending to interview my parents' guests. And, um, and, you know, I always was really interested in other people and, and what they thought. And, and I just wanted to delve deep into, you know, people's psyches. And um, anyway, that, that sort of over the years, I did different things. I studied, you know, I went to university and did anthropology. I didn't do media. But then one day in my early 20s, I, it came back, that dream to be a broadcaster. And my um, late uncle, Ale Hassan, was actually quite a well-known broadcaster at BBC World Service. And he presented the very first Asian magazine program on BBC One in 1965. And, um, and I feel like, you know, it's been in my maternal family. Four of my uncles were broadcasters. And so it hit me in my early 20s. And I suddenly thought, that's what I want to do. I want to present on TV. And well, of course, I, I couldn't just walk into a presenting job because I didn't have the contacts or the experience. So I started my very first job for the BBC as a chauffeur. I was a chauffeur for a BBC show. And uh, the great thing about that job was I got to drive celebrities around. So I got to pick their brains on how did they get ahead? And long story short, I eventually managed to get a job at the BBC Birmingham in the Midlands where they had the Asian programs unit, but I didn't start with them first. I started presenting on Countryfile. That was my first sort of proper big break, if you like. And then from there, I went on to present, you know, a few, a range of other shows as well. Um, so yes, yeah, so it started, I start. that was my dream from a very young age. That's amazing to hear, Sarah. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting when you have these dreams as a child and you're able to shape those dreams into your own destiny and you've done it really well. So kudos on being such an inspiration to all of us. 
Thank you. I've got to say it takes real determination. I mean, I think I drove my late husband and my friends crazy with this obsession, you know, to be, I wanted to be Oprah Winfrey, but in the UK, <laughs> you know, and, and it really did take dogged determination. And I would say if anyone is wanting to, you know, get into the industry, I mean, it's a lot more competitive, I think, in these days than it was then even though then it was very competitive, but never give up. You know, I heard that too. I was told never give up. And I really believe that just, you know, believe in yourself. And, and eventually I wrote at the time, I don't know if you know, Ruby Wax, who's quite a well-known celebrity here in the UK. And I wrote to her and I said, how did you get to be where you are? And she actually wrote me back a handwritten letter, which I still have, and she said, knock down every door until somebody lets you in. <laughs> and I kind of did that, not literally, but metaphorically, I knocked on a lot of doors, you know, so, yeah. That's pretty good advice, Sarah. Uh, you know, you need to find the right door, right? So until that happens, you've got to knock those doors down to figure out your lucky door. And I really like the fact that you had friends and family, especially coming from a family of broadcasters who could really appreciate the dream that you had at a in an era when being a woman in media wasn't something that was predominant, right? So I really appreciate you for being such a cheerleader for a lot of uh, young women like us. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the book 2020. Now, it, it's the book that was written back in 1995. And fast forward 25 years, here we are in 2020. The global pandemic hits and when you look back nigel watts your husband wrote about the same thing he predicted the pandemic how did the idea come about for the book relaunch precisely because of the fact that what he wrote in the book about a global pandemic about virtual communication about the fact that people couldn't travel because of the virus um, which led to virtual tourism and about the fact that the planet was on the brink of an environmental catastrophe. All of these things were the reason why I thought I do not believe it. So what had happened was I was walking with a friend just before Christmas in a local park and I was saying to her, you know, when 2020 comes around, I'm going to read Nigel's book 2020 because I haven't written, re read it for over 20 years. And um, anyway, when lockdown happened, uh, I had some time on my hands and I pulled the book down from the bookshelf and I read, I read, you know, read the dust cover. So I couldn't, I mean, it was a long time since I had read it. I couldn't remember all the detail. And I read the dust cover and it talked about, you know, an aging writer uh, retreats to the icy waste of Northern Canada infected with a deadly virus. And I was like, oh my goodness, a deadly virus. And I kept, you know, I started to read it obviously there and then. And I realized that Nigel had basically, you know, written about all of these things that we're, we're going through now, particularly with the pandemic. And I just decided this needs to be published again because it, you know, it was out of print for quite a long time. And, um, and I got in touch with his agents and they said, well, actually we do have, there is a publisher who would like to publish it, but they can't release it until 2021. And I said, no, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. The book's called 2020, it's set in 2020, it needs to be published in 2020. So that's where, you know, 
that's where we we actually I took it upon myself with my um, friend and colleague Arthur uh, and we published it ourselves and it's now available on Amazon which is fantastic and it's been doing really well we launched it um, last week and uh, we we got you know sort of quite a significant number of uh, hits on it and purchases and people are still buying it and talking about it because it's hit a nerve you know I, I like to say it's it's a message for now even though he wrote it 25 years ago amazing because it's very timely to hear from someone um, who wrote a starts 25 years ago on how the world is going to shape up and a lot of these predictions have come true right so it, it speaks volumes about what Nigel had envisioned the future of our world is going to look like yeah. And one thing the book focuses on is about virtual tourism. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Nigel's thoughts on that and your take? Absolutely. What I'd like to do, if it's all right with you, is just read a little quote about that because he really, he kind of nailed it, you know, in terms of why virtual tourism was necessary. So what he meant by virtual tourism was the fact that because of the virus, people couldn't fly easily like today you know uh and and because of that actually it was also the environmental damage of the carbon footprint so he said in on on one of the pages where he talks about this he said tourism had been ruining what little there was left of natural habitats until reality holidays had taken hold people had a right to recreation and they had a right to know the world they lived in what better way than creating an electronic replica saving the real thing to recover so it had that purpose of actually using virtual reality um, to give people the experience of being away on holiday and the virtual reality program that he talks about in the book features the Kogi tribe and the Kogi tribe are a, an actual tribe that live in the um, Colombian uh, Amazonian you know um, forests and they were brought to prominence actually back in 1990 by a documentary filmmaker called Alan Herrera um, and his documentary was called Heart of the World and basically the, this indigenous tribe wanted to come out to speak via Alan to who they call younger brother, that's us. They refer to themselves as elder brother and they say that they are the guardians of this planet and that they're there to you know, make sure and look after, um, you know, look after the planet. And um, so the, Nigel made the virtual reality program in the book the coggy so that he could use their message basically um to to share with others that's pretty interesting and we're so honored you could read an excerpt from the book you know that's something that uh, we really appreciate you doing it for us now something else that nigel also talks about is mankind's destruction of the planet how do you see it because it's very relevant in today's context be it with you know, global warming or the crises that we've been seeing. Yeah, it's absolutely relevant. And I think Nigel, you know, I mean, in the uh, in the mid 90s, when he wrote this book, he actually wrote it for his PhD. And, and Nigel was passionate about the fact that, you know, he wanted to tell people, look, we're not separate from the environment. We're not separate from nature. Um, and, you know, he actually again if, if you if you'd indulge me another quote from Absolutely. his PhD from his PhD because he talks about this as and, and really he says that you know 
it's important for us to remember that um, we're not separate from, from nature. And he says, um, this isn't in the book, it's in his PhD. I believe the consequences are clear enough. Consider yourself a bag of bones separate from your environment and you will have the moral immunity to treat the world and its contents as things. Taken to its extreme, we have alienation and its concomitant fallout, crime, neurosis, the trashing of the environment. However, see yourself as a leaf from a tree, essentially connected, and so I want to propose natural harmony will result. So he was very, very conscious and cognizant of the fact that, you know, if we if we see ourselves separate somehow, then we're going to, you know, the planet's going to suffer and we're going to suffer because actually what the Kogi say is, you know, if we make the planet sick, we make ourselves sick, which is kind of what's happening in a way. That's very true. And thank you for reading that exclusive from his PhD. I'm quite sure nobody has access to it. So thanks. No, for it's on my bookshelf behind me right now. But yes, that's very interesting. Uh, so, Sarah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the personal side of uh, you. Uh, you know, Nigel has been a great person. He's written this book, but he also took his life uh, back in the 1990s, 1999. How did you deal with that grief? Did you see it coming? Um, tell us a little bit about you know how that shaped you into being a better person today. Well, thank you for saying I'm a better person. I don't know about a better person, but definitely I'm a different person. Um, and I don't actually recognise the woman I was when he before he died compared to the woman I am now, if you like. Um, it's it, I mean it's been twenty years now since he um, passed away, since he took his life, um, and. I guess that the healing journey has been one of a real path of ups and downs. And, um, you know, the the difficult, I suppose the difficult thing is, is that you never get to a point where you say, okay, I'm over it. You know, you think, okay, I feel stronger, I feel better, but then you'll get another wave of grief. And, you know, I have really dealt with it through support of family and friends. Um, and, I really didn't, you know, none of us expected it at all. Um, so when it happened, it was just the biggest shock of my life. And, you know, I think will always be the biggest shock of my life. And, you know, still I can kind of go, whoa, why did you do that? You know, and I'm actually writing my own book at the moment on losing a partner to suicide in order to help people. Because when it happened to me, you know, I just wanted to talk to a young widow. I was 34 when he died. And I, there were no, I couldn't find any young widows. Nobody had gone through what I had gone through. And so um, it really, it's, it's so important to be able to express the feelings around it and express the, you know, anything that you need to say or do, you know, safely to do that with trusted friends and family and have the support that you need. And, you know, I mean, I I just had to follow my instinct and, and know what I need. And I knew what I needed, you know, moment by moment, day by day. Um, and luckily I had, you know, people around me who, who helped me through that. Um, but grief, I think, is something that never fully goes away. Um, it stays with us. But the, the gaps get larger and larger that, where you don't feel such extreme pain. Um, the pain doesn't necessarily 
get less, but the time that you feel it gets, you know, that decreases, I think. And time has been a greatest healer, uh, as we all know. I love Definitely. the fact how you overcame the grief and have positioned yourself, um, you know, as, as a successful woman, um, uh, because a lot of time grief just pulls us down and makes us question who we are and why things are happening to us. Yeah. And I really love the fact that you went on a, a road trip adventure and you stayed in Arizona in a ranch for two years. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how that happened. So, you know, when I said that, you know, I think for me that, that walking through grief for me was very much about what do I need and when do I need that? And I, it was about five years after Nigel died and, um, I was very, actually, maybe it was a little longer. I think it was about seven years after he died. And I was in my apartment here in, in London, where I am now. And I remember just sort of like feeling really blue. And, you know, everywhere I went was a reminder of him. And I just thought, you know, I just can't shake this feeling. And um, anyway, very long story short, I, I remember feeling like, I just want to expand and be somewhere with a lot of space. And I don't know what that means, but that's what I want to do. And about, I don't know, maybe six months later, I ended up going on a road trip with a friend of mine through the States to the four corners um, of Arizona, Nevada, California, and um, New Mexico. It was a fantastic road trip. And actually, it was a, a road trip that Nigel and I had taken just a couple of months before he took his life. So it was kind of you know, special but difficult at the same time. Anyway, we were doing this road trip and um, I ended up, we ended up doing this course in equine therapy, which is basically um, using horses to give therapy to human beings, right? So the horse is kind of like the therapist, but obviously there's a human therapist there as well. And we, we ended up in this ranch in Arizona with this woman called Laura Brinkerhoff, who's now a very good friend of mine. She's an amazing woman. You should have her on your, your show. And um, she took us through this whole session of equine therapy. And this horse and I had this amazing, I had this amazing experience. And I just thought, this is fascinating. And I, um, I said to this woman, Laura, I said, I want to study this. Okay, that was August. And then in November, so I came home uh, and then in the November, I was out there again, um, meeting sort of the, the course and the university where I was going to be studying this. And then I came back home. I rented my apartment out, packed everything up and was on a plane in the January. And I flew out to Tucson, Arizona to study equine therapy. And I lived on a ranch, you know, it was crazy because I hate bugs, I hate spiders, I hate snakes. <laughs> and all of those were my neighbors on this ranch. But it was really, I would say the, you know, two best years, one of the two best years of my life. It was an amazing time. Thanks for sharing those vulnerable moments with us because as um, you know, somebody who has um, gone through a lot of challenges in life, it's always nice to see there's light at the end of the tunnel and there's a way in which you can overcome grief and become a different person, like what you mentioned. It does change us, you know, and you never know how it's going to change you. But I remember, you know, very, very soon after his death saying that I would not, you know, build a wall around myself. And even though I was in 
deep pain for at least a year. I wanted to follow him, to be perfectly honest with you. But I knew there was a survival instinct in me that knew I just, I could not do that. You know, I couldn't do that. Um, I had a life to live. And what's been amazing about republishing his work is that for years, his novels, his fiction has been out of print. He has got a novel, uh, sorry, a, a, a nonfiction book, which is still in print. It's a bestseller, um, Teach Yourself writing a novel and getting it published um, because he was a creative writing, you know, um, teacher, workshop leader, had a PhD in creative writing. He knew a lot about the craft of writing and the creative aspect as well. And so, um, yeah, I just feel like having republished this book, you know, his fiction work, it's in some ways just such a, such a satisfying feeling because I feel like, you know, it's brought a part of him back to life through his work. I couldn't agree more because you're continuing his legacy going forward. And I think the book is just a perfect segue to remind people that his thoughts still live in this world. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. And um, it's important to continue the legacy of people, but it has its time, doesn't it? And that's what's so amazingly strange about this whole story is that 20 years this book lay dormant and then boom 2020 hit boom covid hit you know it's like oh my goodness here it is right here it has to be done yeah so. very true and i really admire your courage to uh, you know make this a reality because with covid uh, and this pandemic it's always nice to read relevant pieces of information from different perspectives and i think nigel watts 2020 book does it and for our listeners out there, um, so this book, as I mentioned, was first published in 1995 by the big publishing house, Harder, and which at the time received a lot of rave reviews from the best uh, you know, newspapers uh, around, be it the Times, the Sunday Times. So it's definitely a book that's worth reading and uh, you know, something that you'll have to uh, check it out as well. Now, uh, I'm just interested to learn uh, from you, uh, Sarah. What do you think Nigel would have thought about with this book relaunch if he was still around? I <laughs> I think he'd be absolutely delighted. At least I, yes, I'm sure he would be. You know, he's felt kind of very close to me at times, or I felt him to be close during this process. And, you know, there have been times when it's been really painful, you know, like I was, there have been times when I've been sobbing to my friends going, I just can't do this, it's too much. You know, all the emotion of, of, of him and his work, you know, it, and, I think he would be really, really pleased, you know, and um, I really hope that it gets the recognition um, again this time round. But, you know, in some ways with social media that didn't really kind of exist, as I don't think, in the in the mid 90s, um, it gets I think it gets to have a bigger platform, which is really cool. So um, I think he'd be really pleased. Definitely. Yeah. And well-deserved accolades and recognition that truly belongs to him. So I'm glad you're actually on this endeavor to spearhead the relaunch of the book. Now, Sarah, what's the one thing that you would want to share with our listeners about the eerie predictions of 2020 that's so close to your heart? Well, I think um, in terms of the, you know, the prediction, for me, the biggest message has to come through what he wrote about, about the Coggy and actually 
let's really start looking after our planet. And, um, you know, th there's a great quote that he talks about. Um, the children of the 21st century will really understand this. And it's them that, you know, will do something about this. And it could, I can't help thinking, you know, in 2019, when Greta Thunberg basically, you know, she was the catalyst for all the school children around the world to get up and march and protest. That was so powerful for me. So for me, I think it's very much about I really you know, the, the, the children are the custodians, you know, they're the inheritors and we've all got a part to play no matter how old we are. But for me, that was extremely powerful. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely. Now let's talk about you, um, what the amount of work that you've done in the last two decades as a courageous coach, as somebody who loves connecting with people and helping them succeed. Talk to us about how the last 25 years of your life has really shaped you in your journey? Wow, big question. <laughs> um, so uh, after my TV career, I, I actually did go into um, facilitating and coaching in organizations in, in leadership training and coaching, which I absolutely love because my mission is really to help people to be the best they can be in whatever context they work in. And, um, you know, I really feel like when people connect with who they truly are and they connect with others and they connect with life in an authentic way um, that's when we can kind of hit our best if you like um, and it requires a purpose it's like you know what is my passion what is my purpose in life and so I've always asked myself that question and I've never done anything that hasn't sat right with me. And so I like to encourage people to really get in touch with why they're doing what they're doing. Does it serve their higher purpose and their values, et cetera? And that's what really, you know, that's what fires my, yeah, it fires my imagination. It fires my passion. Um, and, you know, people sometimes need a little bit of support to understand and discover what is it actually that they truly want, you know? And I don't believe that we can't necessarily do what we, we dream to do. Obviously, circumstances might happen where we can't. And then we have to accept that and think, well, maybe I'm not supposed to do that, but maybe it's something else. Um, but it's always important to really, yeah, connect with, actually, what is it I want? And then have the courage to pursue that, so... Yeah, that's what I, I like to help people in. A bit like you with your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's such an honor to hear those wonderful words from you. Uh, you wanted to be the Oprah of UK, and now here you are focusing on your next part of the journey as a book author. What's next for Sarah? Well, so you, yes, I am also a writer, and it's really interesting because I. I remember also as a child writing stories, you know, I did a lot of things as a child. It's amazing how, you know, when we become adults, some of those things just, they come back to us. And interestingly, when Nigel was alive, he was the writer in the family, not me. I was the TV presenter. And after his passing, I discovered, actually, I have a penchant for writing as well. And um, so what's next is I am working on um, my own book which is, you know, really I want to focus it on losing a partner um, to, to suicide because that's, it's a very unique experience. And, um, and it's, I'm writing it in order to help others, you know, because I've walked that path that not, 
not many people from at a young age lose their their husbands, their wives, you know, their their mates, if you like. And I lost Nigel just as we were about to have a family as well. So there was that other layer of grief around not having children. And, you know, I that's my next big big project, if you like. But 2020 is taking up a lot of time at the moment. So I've had to press the pause button on that. Um, but yeah, it's it's my intention to get back to that and, and complete that book and get it out into the world. And you're doing a great job to share the wisdom that uh, Nigel had written in the book. So thank you for that. And thank you for also walking us through, you know, the emotional and the complex journey that you've been through. You know, sometimes we just have to take a step back and realize that people face a lot of struggles and what we think of as struggles is just a, a storm and a teacup. You know, that's something that we'll have to realize sometimes when you look at a bigger perspective. Well, and I think everybody's struggle is their struggle. I don't believe in comparing because you know what? Everyone suffers in their own way, um, whether it's, you know, this big or that big, you know, everyone has that. So I think it's important to be compassionate to all suffering, you know. So, yeah, I sound like the Buddha. It's nice to hear pearls of wisdom from, you know, people who, who have walked, uh, you know, tough paths yeah. and have emerged as different people, as, you know, people who are inspiring to others because grief can weigh you down a lot and it's hard to just, uh, you know, be your normal self. So I really admire your courage and your resilience to be the best in whatever you uh, aspire. So we wish you the very best in your upcoming book uh, venture as well. But before we let you go, we have a fun rapid fire round for you. Are you ready for it? Okay. All right. Hit me. <laughs> Awesome. So you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the following. Role model? Ooh, it was Oprah Winfrey, but now it's Jacinta Ardern. What does success mean to you? Contentment. What do you do when you're happy? I smile and um, I like to dance. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, those are qualities that we'll have to uh, keep instilling in ourselves to get that childlike energy in us what's your favorite hobby apart from writing your book actually dancing i love dancing yeah and lockdown has been really not great for that because i i like to go out dancing in kind of clubs and places like that but actually i have been doing it at home <laughs> you know, dance is a nice expression um, to share your happiness the, the different emotions that you go through so that's really cool now one last question for you what is your native language and one word to describe yourself in it? Well, truthfully, my native language is English because I was born in Canada. I was brought up here. Um, and I would say uh, my friend gave me a great Christmas present. And on it, she said uh, one of the qualities of, of me is zest. And I feel like zest. I have a zest for life. Always have done. So and hopefully always will have. So zest. You know, you're someone, uh, Sarah, who's full of life, uh, as you can definitely see, with a big smile and the love and the enthusiasm to live life to the fullest and knock those doors, right? So that's really amazing. Now, the three key takeaways that I always share with my listeners is uh, with this episode, you know, talking to you, one, I've learned about how do you really uh, look at life in terms of a bigger picture and focus on living your life, no matter what the circumstances are. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we have to remind ourselves amidst all the different challenges that we go through. And two, it's uh, still having fun in life, 
you know be the adventure that you talked about apartment hunting uh, and how you ended up with the royal highness household or be it your equine therapy in a ranch in arizona overcoming your fears for bugs and spiders you know those are like life threatening fears that a lot of us have and three and the most important of all is continuing the legacy of nigel watts through his amazing book 2020 which is focused on uh, the predictions that he provided 25 years ago about how the world is going to shape and you know what we have to do as truly global citizens uh, giving back to nature and nurturing nature uh, so those are three pearls of wisdom that i really enjoyed getting to know from you well thank you i'm so glad you summarized it in that way because that those are really important points so fantastic thank you it's been great to be with you priyanka thank you so much sara to our career startup podcast listeners uh, that was sara chauhan the first one of the first female asian presenters uh, in bbc was made a niche for herself and uh, coming from a family of broadcasters uh, she's really made the mark for herself who serves as a role model for a lot of uh, young women like me personally and uh, you know how she's continuing her journey with a lot of zest for life so i think those parting thoughts would really keep us inspired so until another episode with another interesting guest this is your host priyanka komla signing off from career startup podcast a podcast to spotlight asian leaders and interesting allies that i meet in my life thank you for joining us on this youtube